I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And in this week's episode of the podcast, I'm talking with Rob Adams, City Architect for the City of Melbourne. So if I have my facts correct, your title is Director of City Design at the City of Melbourne. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about what that actually means and what your job involves? Uh, Susie, that uh, has been the case for 38 years that um, I, I came to the City of Melbourne to help write a strategy plan in 1985. And then afterwards they said, could I carry on and help implement that, which uh, I've done. And the role was very much one of designing and delivering a project for the city, putting in place uh, programs and action plans like Postcode 3000. But in November of this year, um, I decided that uh, there needed to be a succession plan and uh, I'm now part-time with the city as the city architect. So my current role is the city architect at the city of Melbourne. And that's more of an advisory and mentoring role. Uh, and uh, someone else has taken over the substantive role um, at the moment in the city. Mm. Well, it's it's very much your involvement with the City of Melbourne that I wanted to talk to you about today. Uh, and I, I read uh, a quote of yours actually in an earlier interview where you said that nobody teaches us about how cities work. And I wonder why it is, and perhaps could you tell us maybe a few things, key things that you've learned along the way about how cities work. I think the formal courses that uh, certainly I was taught and I think most people in design fields were taught and um, certainly with the architectural uh, degree, uh, it's a bit like if you were a doctor, you were being taught to be a brain surgeon before you were being taught to be a general practitioner. Uh, in fact, it took me to go away overseas in my fourth year as an architectural student to discover that most of the additions we were making to cities were not of a very high quality and they were being driven by a modernist uh, idealism about um, you know, keeping the city simple, uh, segregating into different component parts. And that's, I think, still very much the case. And I think that's a complication for our cities that uh, they, we're not really servicing the professionals who are going into change cities adequately. And, and therefore, many of the planning mechanisms that I see um, are overly complex and still in many ways reflect the segregated uh, aspect of the modernist city. Firstly, I'd, I'd see that the universities try and readjust their courses, but uh, I think that's always going to be a difficulty because universities are incredibly conservative and, and sometimes very bureaucratic, unfortunately. And uh, so the other thing is, how do we give designers who come to the city some simple tools that they can use. There are eight that I work to, um, and uh, they, they come from uh, a study that was done back in 2002, and it's called The Value of Good Urban Design. And basically what that study says is that if you're going to have a good city, a good outcome that has a sustainable outcome, an economic outcome, and a, a social outcome, then what you need is 
reasonable densities. You need to be uh, well connected so you can move around in any form, uh, you know, from walking right through to public transport and bikes and cars. Um, you, you need to make it a mixed use city. What that means is you can walk out of your door and within 12 minutes you can find everything you need. But most crucially, I think, for our day and age with the onset of climate change and, uh, you know, the pandemic and, and things like that, uh, adaptability. You need to be able to adapt the city. Uh, the, the population moving to a city or moving to cities generally is, is enormous. It's over 50% of the global population. It'll be 75% by 2050. So we haven't got the time to build new cities. We're going to have to adapt the cities we've got to absorb that population. And then the last two are really that we need to do that in unison. And, and we need to obviously um, you know, bring the people, the public along with us, which is about community consultation. So those, those, that's the sort of mantra I work to. Mm. Well, I think I'll, I'll come back to some of those points in a moment. So I, I wanted to clarify then, do you, do, would you suggest perhaps that some of this, some of what you do in your profession, you are self-taught in a way? Would you say that? No, I think what happened in the uh, mid-1970s is there were a lot of people who were starting to ask questions about why the cities we were, the new cities we were designing, the new towns like Stevenage and others, um, why were they not exciting places to live in? And uh, some of those early pioneers in New York, uh, you know, Jane Jacobs uh, fighting with, uh, you know, Moses in terms of, you know, freeways being taken through the middle of New York. People like Jan Gell, um, who in Copenhagen is asking the question, you know, why, why are we not looking more at the space between buildings? Uh, you know, that public realm that's so important where we lead our public life, our democratic life. And there were some courses starting up. And I, um, having in 69, walked around um, you know, cities in Europe and, and got this uneasy feeling about how they were being designed, uh, was in London in the mid-70s when uh, the um, Oxford Brookes University offered an urban design course. And I signed up to that. And it was led by some very good people, Simon Atkinson and a few others. Um, and it started to focus on what are we getting wrong in cities? And, and so you got the emergence of courses like that, and there were a number that emerged around that time. And you suddenly got a professional group of people that were asking all those embarrassing questions, like how come you know, the high rise uh, you know, in, in the park landscape that Luca Busier was talking about, how come they're failing socially? How come people don't like that environment? Um, and uh, so, no, I wasn't self-taught. I was helped by a whole lot of very, um, you know, very important people, some of whom, like Jan Gell, who's just turned 85 uh, last week, are still around and still doing fantastic work. Mm. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Jane Jacobs. That was going to be part of my next question. Um, it's, she seems to have been quite an influence on many people in your profession. Uh, so I want to talk about Melbourne specifically and the work that you and your team have done on revitalising the CBD. It was pretty lifeless. I've actually been out of Australia for almost 18 years and uh, even as it is now, it certainly has changed drastically, but it was lifeless after hours and your team spent quite some time obviously working to bring life and activity back to the city centre. 
Uh, I imagine that some of those strategies may have been quite simple and straightforward and, and perhaps others were longer term and more complex and requiring of a bigger budget. Could you tell us whether you are actually still implementing some of those original strategies? Look, I think we are implementing uh, some of those original strategies. The, the vision that came out um, in 85, and uh, it's not written down as simply as this, but it was this was the vision. And that was that uh, the councillors of the day wanted a 24-hour city that looked and felt like Melbourne. And uh, very much the ethos of those councillors was, don't look at Sydney, don't look at New York, don't look at Los Angeles, let's look at Melbourne and come up with a strategy that's going to work for Melbourne. And that was, that was a crucial uh, you know, point early on. But in changing the city, let's make it more like Melbourne, not less like Melbourne. And so let's build on those strengths that we've already got. Uh, the council was broke and uh, at that stage, so there wasn't a lot of money. So 10 years before they said uh, in the, the plan that had done previously that you know, they were going to underground the trams in, uh, in the Burke Street Mall and a whole lot of other things that were never going to happen. So we started a process of incrementalism. Um, we started to set quite ambitious targets, but give ourselves the luxury of saying we could get there over time. We didn't have to do this within the three-year or four-year term of a council. You know, this, this was uh, a shift that could take, you know, decades uh, to change. But the targets were clear and uh, certainly the culture of the organisation changed. Um, it changed uh, because you couldn't get anything through the council unless it, it, it reflected the strategy. So some of the strategies were, um, you know, we needed a population back in the central city. And the figure in the strategy plan was we needed 8,000 people in the next 15 years. So, you know, 15 years was given to that strategy. And I'll be absolutely honest, at the time, we weren't quite sure how we were going to do that. But we knew that that's what we had to do. We had to get as many as 8,000 people. And that was a slightly arbitrary figure, but it was the figure that said, if you get that many people in the city, it will change the downtown. And there were other things. We needed to move the emphasis away from the motor car and, and towards public transport, pedestrians and bikes. Again, if you went out and said, we're just going to take um, you know, asphalt away from the roads uh, and, and make it more difficult for cars to get into the city, it would have been shouted down by Vic Roads and others. So what we did is we just started very slowly to take asphalt away. And uh, I can sit here today and say we've taken nearly 90 hectares of asphalt out of the central city and repurposed it. Uh, and I go back to that thing I talked about, adaptation. We've repurposed that for wider footpaths, uh, open space, places, places to plant trees, uh, to make the footpaths places where people linger, not just, you know, go to and from work. And um, that, that's a program that's still going today. I mean, uh, as you walk out outside the National Gallery and, uh, um, you know, uh, the Melbourne Theatre Company and you'll find South Bank Boulevard has been cut or reduced in dimension by half. And there's a linear park that runs from St Kilda Road right down to, uh, you know, the Yarra River that's emerging. And it'll be completed um, about mid next year. So these were long-term strategies and many of them are still continuing. But the most important of those was that postcode 3000, which was the 8,000 residential people needing to come back to the city. And you could say there was an element of luck, um, but uh, you know you might say you also make your own luck, and that is 
with the property market crashing in the late 80s and a lot of office buildings having been built uh, in the boom pre-late 80s, uh, we found ourselves with a, a surplus of office space uh, when the property market crashed. That was the secondary office space because everybody had moved up into the, the new office buildings because the rents were dropped once the market crashed. And Postcode 3000 was about adapting those for residential, uh, turning office buildings into residential. And that set off a program that has now seen 685 residential units downtown in 1985 to 45,000 downtown today. Now, you can't put 45,000 residential uh, apartments or units into a city without changing the culture of that city. There are bars, cafes, restaurants, supermarkets. The city's alive, not 24 hours, but uh, you know, for long hours each day. And that, that, so, yes, there is still, that's still being carried on, but the basics, basic tenets of that strategy, I think, are still uh, underlying what we do today. Mm. I mean, it was clearly quite successful because, I mean, as a Melbourneian, the city was never somewhere that people considered living and, and, you know, became somewhere that was very desirable. But, you know, obviously now with the situation that we're in currently, I, I live in the CBD. Do you feel like perhaps your work has been undone to some degree? Does it make you sad to see how quiet the city is at the moment? I think one uh, couldn't feel a little bit of uh, sadness about um, you know a city that had become so vibrant, um, uh, you know, in, in a state today where you know there are, are not as many people in the central city. But um, I suppose uh, I'm the eternal optimist. I mean, I, this city will come back. Um, it'll come back in a slightly different form, and ironically. That form might be slightly better than the form that uh, you know it was heading towards. Um, for instance, I think uh, if I'm brutally honest about Postcode 3000 and having led that program, I, I suppose I can be. Uh, uh, the, the program was too successful in a way, and it pushed out um, you know many people who could no longer afford to be in the central city. The creatives uh, being one of those, and and the amount of affordable housing that was provided. Uh, was not sufficient uh, to allow key workers and people like that to stay in the city. So um, we, I think, have an opportunity now in resetting to uh, ask the question, well, can we in fact use some of the space, as we did back in the late 80s, convert residential, uh, sorry, office to residential, can we now um, provide creative spaces in the surplus office space we're going to get um, over the next uh, you know, period of time. And I think that is a possibility. And I, I think there is an opportunity here to bring back a greater creativity. And uh, I think people are realizing just how important that is to our life because it's, in a way it's been taken away from us for you know, the last 18 months. As I say, I can't feel some remorse to see the city in the state it is at the moment, but I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that um, the city uh, in five years time will be uh, a, a different city and, and a much better city in many ways. Mm. I was just going to ask you what your thoughts might be about that time frame. So you're suggesting that five years might be a realistic amount of time for that reset to happen? I think it'll happen, uh, some of it'll happen faster than that. I mean, um, uh, you know, the I don't think you're going to see uh, people go back to the office for five days a week. Um, I think, you know, once uh, 
uh, you know, there's, there's a phenomenon that happens. For instance, the best way to get into the central city is by public transport, uh, and then most probably followed by bikes and walking, um, and, and then the car is slowly becoming less of an option. But immediately post-COVID, people are going to favour the car for uh, a whole lot of understandable reasons and feel slightly wary about public transport. So you're going to have to get into the post-vaccination stage before people feel comfortable climbing on to uh, public transport um, and, and, and coming to work. And so certain things are going to happen. Uh, I think hours will shift. There won't be the set eight to five, not that there ever was in Melbourne. But, uh, you know, everybody rushing in and trying to get on the same infrastructure early in the morning and trying to get out of the city on the same infrastructure is something we don't have to do. We can, we've reset our hours and all of us are now, you know, working to slightly different hours. I, I mean, I used to be in the office at seven o'clock to avoid that rush. Um, I now have a long walk in the morning. I have a slightly more leisurely breakfast and, and then I plan my day. Uh, where I'll, I'll work a little later and I'll, I'll do all the hours I did it and, and, and uh, they beyond the normal. But so we, we're leveling off that peak and that will happen. But I, I think for people to get back to a state of complete confidence of saying we just jump on public transport and we go into the office and things like that, that will take some time. Uh, and uh, it might it won't be the five years, it might be you know, 12, 18 months before that uh, happens. And people are confident that you know, there's enough vaccination and uh, immunity around that. But the, the space won't have been taken up because they won't be going back, I don't think, for the five days. So there'll be this residual space in the city that needs to be taken up. And the question is, are we smart enough to, you know, use that space for people like the creatives who can come back in and possibly work within offices or work with uh, other companies. Now, not all the creatives can do that. You can't do sculpture from the middle of an office, but uh, you, a lot of the digital work and, and many of the others can be done. And I think that change will take four to five years, yes. Mm. It'll be very interesting to see how that uh, rolls out. Um, so if we're to look beyond COVID, uh, you spoke at a TEDx conference in Sydney in 2010, I believe it was, and forecasted Melbourne's growth needs. Uh, and I think that was based on 2022, which is now next year. Um, so if we're to add those needs to the global pandemic and obviously an increased urgency to address the climate crisis, um, what else would you say that we need to do in Melbourne specifically to prepare for the future and how else could Melbourne be, um, you know, how else could it be functioning better and more sustainably? Than it already is. Yes, and uh, I, I remember that TEDx in 2010. I was about five minutes into it with my slide presentation cut out in front of me, and uh, uh, I was at uh, lost for words. And it was the most frightening experience of my life. But uh, <laughs> they uh, they did they did fix that, and uh, they cut out that little piece where I you could hear me saying, "I do need the next slide." <laughs> but, that is terrifying. Um, I know. Um, but um, look, um, what I was talking about then is where most of my optimism is today. Because what I was saying, uh, you know, and this is to praise it enormously, is that um, if you wanted to double the population of, of Melbourne, uh, and back in 2010, that was about 4 million, and you wanted to put 8 million people in the area, and we were projecting to go to 8 million by 
uh, you know, 2050. And, and uh, you could do that without subdividing another piece of land on the fringe. No more farms, just close the boundaries and say, let's come back in on ourselves. And if you did that, um, and the reason you would do that is because the cost of producing the infrastructure in those new areas is so high, in many cases, they don't get delivered. You know, you don't get the, the public transport and you don't get the facilities that people need. So they become car-orientated societies uh, out of necessity. And so if you, you stopped and you came back in on yourself, the, the, the bottom, uh, the headlines that came out of that is you could do that by building no higher than eight storeys, five to eight storeys. You'd build that along and around your existing public transport, your, your corridors, your, your activity centres and, and brownfield sites. If you did that, um, you only had to use about 7.5% of the metro area. So 92.5% of people would not see their local area change. The big thing was you would save $110 billion in infrastructure costs over that period for every million people you added to the city. So if you're going to add $4 million, that's $440 billion in infrastructure costs. And this, uh, for me, is, uh, and it came out of an experience I had. I mean, when I was traveling around, as I said, in the mid, uh, late 1960s and went to Europe, um, it was when all the baby boomers were coming to the university system. And um, uh, so they were building universities and, uh, uh, and expanding them all over Europe. And I was visiting those because that was where all the exciting architecture was. And I came back to Cape Town where I was at university and um, it's stuck on the side of Table Mountain and surrounded by a national park and it can't be expanded. And I sort of said to the campus planners, so how are you going to expand? And they said, oh, we just asked a different question. And I said, what's that? And they said, oh, we've asked how well are we using the stuff we've already got? And when they checked, things like lecture theatres were being used for 17.5% of the academic week. And they just said, so we just reprogrammed, we re-timetabled. And I'd expected the campus, because I'd noticed they'd trebled their population, and I expected the campus to have totally changed in character. Almost nothing had happened. They just re-timetabled. Very few buildings had been made, but the campus was absolutely buzzing. Uh, you know, from early in the morning till late at night, which wasn't the case when I was there. We used to knock off at two and go surfing. Um, and I sort of said, well, if you can do that with a, a university, which is like a small city, why can't you do that with a city? And that was the question I asked in 2010 and produced that doc document called Transforming Australian Cities. And if you looked at all of the Australian capital cities through a study Griffiths University had done uh, called the Vampire Study. What those studies were showing was the cities were already under stress. Those fringe areas that were underserviced were becoming very difficult areas to live in because people had to own two cars, they had high petrol prices, their mortgages were, were although it's meant to be a cheap place to live, their mortgages were still significant. And they were starting to default. And that, to me, said, we need to change this. We need to you know, come back in on ourselves. The great thing that's happened in COVID is we've all lived in our local area and we've all started to appreciate our local area and say, how do we make this better? Can I walk to everything I need? Um, if not, you know, how do I get over that? Particularly if someone says, you can't go further than five kilometres from where you live. Can you imagine being in 
the fringe of Melbourne and told you can't go five kilometres from where you live, you could hardly access anything. Um, so COVID has made us think more locally. And I think Melbourne will be stronger for this experience because people are now reinvesting in their own areas. Uh, they, you know, they're supporting their own, uh, you know, shops and retail in those areas. And that is, a, 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 to a certain extent, at the expense of the central city, which is why I'm saying four to five years. And, but those local areas become stronger. And I think that's really good for Metro Melbourne. But I think the government's got to stop um, producing, you know, that accommodation on the fringe that clearly um, is not a, not a good and efficient outcome for, for the capital cities of Australia. Mm. So for, for us to accommodate the, the growth of Melbourne specifically that's been forecasted, we're, we're talking about, well, you, you mentioned reprogramming, but also density and you know, increasing the density of the metropolitan area. I think this is a notion that is somewhat alien to Australians and has negative connotations. And I, I wondered whether you had any thoughts on why it is that we're so, so scared of, of, of the word density. You're right. Uh, I mean, density is like the dirty word in planning. I, I was talking to the ABC maybe eight years ago after uh, that document had come out and they were doing a, a study on density. And it really irritated me that as they were talking, uh, in the background, you could just see buildings rising. You know, you know they'd used a graphic of these sort of tall buildings rising. And density has always been equated to high-rise. Um, Yet the reality is you get some very dense cities that are low-rise cities, um, Barcelona being one. Uh, Barcelona, you know, uh, if you go back 10, 15 years before you got some of the mega cities in China and Hong Kong and some of what we've done in Melbourne, um, Barcelona actually was one of the highest density cities in the world. Um, Vienna's got a very high density and they're only built to seven stories. And uh, so, I think we've always in Australia equated high density with high rise. We're also very protective of our suburban environment. Um, you know, the, the, the fear people have that somehow someone's going to build something high next to them and it's going to cut out their sunlight or, you know, they're going to look into the backyard and all the rest of it is, is a really strong feeling in Australia. The irony is when you get out to the new suburbs, they don't have a backyard. Um, you know, the, the lots have become smaller and the houses have become bigger and, and the house just about fills the whole property. So there's nothing to, you know, overshadow in many cases, yet we still fiercely protect it. And I think this is something that we, we need to have um, a more intelligent conversation about. And the reason I mentioned the seven and a half percent is if 7.5% is the amount of the metro area you're going to use, and it's along the high streets and around the train stations and on the brownfield sites, then you can have a discussion and say, well, look, we won't put high-rise into the suburbs. We don't need to. And therefore, as a community, we need to support this increased density in and around this infrastructure which we've already built, which is highly costly and, and uh, needs to become more efficient. And... Um, there needs to be a better narrative about how we do that. In fact, one of the, um, you know, the jobs I'm doing with the other half of my week is helping the Sunshine Coast write a narrative because they're wanting to put in light rail and um, uh, you know, increase the densities, but their community is kicking up against that. 
And you need to start spelling out what are the benefits of this increased density. Um, a, it doesn't have to be high rise. It can be, as I say, five to uh, eight stories. It can be even lower than that, five to six. Um, you bring with that mixed use. You bring with that walkability. You bring greater uh, efficiency in terms of the sustainable energy and, and, and the, the things we need. There are a whole lot of benefits that come from it. But we, we, we haven't had the narrative to explain that to people. And therefore, it's you know, not in my backyard. And uh, that, that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, Australia and other countries like the American uh, you know, suburban cities and the African suburban cities of convincing people that you can have density without losing the quality of your living environment. That's interesting. I spent some time in Indonesia a few years back where um, there are, I think, tens of thousands of new architectural graduates every year. Um, it's obviously an enormous population. So the percentage of people graduating from that field of study is much higher than it is here, for example. Um, but a number of people in architecture and urban planning go into politics. And there are a number of mayors in Indonesia that are ex-architects, urban planners. And I found that concept quite interesting. And I wondered whether you had any thoughts about whether more people in your profession should be involved in politics, whether that would have um, a significant impact on how our cities are developed and built and maintained. I think the answer, simple answer to that is yes. And, um, and, and I go back to the 1980s because both the state level and the local level, that's exactly what happened. I mean, Evan Walker, uh, who was in partnership with Daryl Jackson, became the Minister of Planning in the state government. And uh, David Yenkin, who had been, um, you know, with um, uh, one of the large home designers, um, became the Secretary for Planning. And so you had people who had been involved in the field who were now looking at how you regulate the development in Melbourne. And in, in the, the City Council, you had Becky Ord, uh, the first uh, female mayor, who was an architect, Trevor Huggard, uh, you know, an engineer, um, people coming out of, uh, you know, the entertainment and creative industries. And it was their vision, really, that helped change the city. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, what was your role? Well, well, my role was, you know, I'd just arrived from Zimbabwe. I'd been in, in, in town five minutes. Um, I had no idea uh, of, uh, you know, how the city worked. All I could do was listen, and there were people like Ruth and Maury Crow in North Melbourne who you know, were planners and had a long history, and I just listened to them and just said, well, you know, I understand what they're trying to say. They, they like their local area. They, they like the detail in the streets. You know, some people say, why would you keep the bluestone, uh, you know, cobbled channels down the side of the road? They're part of the local character. Um, you know, that's something that has a value. You don't get it in other cities, therefore it's part of our city. So, yeah, I think uh, the answer to that question is it would be good if uh, more people in the creative professions got into, uh, you know, local government, um, because it is the coalface of government. Uh, it's where, you know, you, you actually do face the community and you have to solve their daily problems. Um, and I hadn't realised that when I first came into local government. In fact, I stumbled into local government, uh, you know, out of necessity to get a job in the 1980s. Um, but uh, I've become firmly convinced that this is the right place to be if you want to make a change.
Well, my final question for you is, as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, you're sort of in succession planning, I suppose. What, um, what are your hopes for Melbourne and what do you think the future of the city looks like? As I mentioned, I think um, within, uh, and I hope it's shorter than five years, but within four to five years, um, you know, people will be back in the centre and it'll be a uh, thriving place it was before. We would have lost some very important uh, people and institutions along the way, um, but they will be replaced and um, uh, there will still be a new offer. I hope we get our students back. Um, I think what people very seldom think of Melbourne as, it's a university town. Um, it's, it's up there with the Cambridges and the, the Oxfords in terms of the importance of students to our economy. 40% uh, of you know, the, the, the population downtown were students. Um, so the age profile of central Melbourne is very low. Um, and that's why it had a vibrancy. Uh, and and uh, we need to get that back. We need to, um, you know, make coming to Australia and Melbourne uh, an experience that uh, students want to be part of and, and, and bring them back in. I hope we've learned how to come back in a greener way, how to, um, you know, celebrate uh, walking our local areas, uh, using our city in a way that's more efficient. Um, not always feeling we have to build something that's new, but using things more efficiently. I think a lot of us have felt that. I mean, I think there have been, there've been people who've saved quite a bit of money because they haven't been buying the things they think will make them happy. They've been, you know, existing at home and mostly questioning, did I really need all the stuff I was buying? You know, can I, in fact, operate my life in a slightly different way? So I think... Melbourne will come back as a wise city. Um, I think it always has been a wise city. I mean, people talk about smart cities. It's one thing to have the technology. It's another thing to use it in a way that is, is effective. And I think Melbourne's done that. I mean, with its urban forest strategy um, and its city as a catchment and postcode 3000, all of those were having the data, but using it in a way that you used your infrastructure to the, you know, the best outcome. And uh, so I have a huge amount of faith in Melbourne. It is a wise city. I think the people are thoughtful um, and I think they care. And uh, uh, in caring for that city, uh, I think in five years time, uh, we've had a hard knock, but I, I, I think uh, we, we've learned a lot from it. And let's, let's hope we put those practices into practice, uh, those, um, you know, outcomes into practice and uh, do make it a better city. Mm. I hope so too. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Rob. It's been a pleasure chatting. And thank you also for everything that you've done to make Melbourne the city that it is today. Well, uh, if it was me, I, I would take that compliment, but it's a huge team of people and uh, very proud to be in that position. Uh, so thank you. Thank you.